You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts 15, where we're going to be today, or pull it up on your phone as we continue our series on unity. And I hope that as we've been going through this, as we've been going through Acts and thinking about what it means that God has unified us together, not just as one local church, but with Christians throughout the history of the Christian movement and and Christians around the world today, it has given you a greater sense of awe at God's handiwork. And I say awe on purpose because what I hope for you and for me is that we would see the unity of the church not as something that's a referendum on how we do, but based on what God has done. And that it's awe-inspiring to think of the fact that, that God brings us together with other Christians around the world. The book of Acts includes a lot of awe-inspiring stories of God's handiwork. From Jesus' after his resurrection, his equipping us as, as his disciples, as his followers, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's how Acts starts. And then we see these, these miracles of God's intervention in history, like his spirit coming down like tongues of fire on the first apostles and them speaking in tongues to uh, incredible stories of miracles, of people being um, delivered from demons and earthquakes, driving people out of uh, being imprisoned. And you think, this is a, a wonder of God, this book that we're reading in front of us. And then we get to chapter 15. And Paul and Barnabas, who are held up as leaders and godly men, uh, people who are heroes of our faith, get in this squabble that seems so non-supernatural, which I get is not a word, but it's what I mean, It doesn't seem awe-inspiring. It doesn't seem wondrous. It doesn't seem miraculous. It just seems like the sort of stupid stuff that people do. Barnabas sees things one way. Paul sees them another. And they can't get along and they split. And you think, where's the wonder in that? Where is the virtue in that? Where is God in that? And that's why I want to talk about it, right? In some ways, it'd be more fun to kind of skip it and focus on the passages that that are awe-inspiring about our faith. But in this little five verses here at the end of chapter 15, we see a mirror for ourselves. What is it about Paul and Barnabas that we see in our own self, in this capacity, even after they have done great things for God, experienced God in profound ways, uh, held together through terrible persecutions, that in their insistence on being right, sever relationship with one another. I say it's a, a mirror for ourselves because a lot of you have had stories like that, where you've been part of a church or part of a faith community or part of a family, where out of an insistence on being right, people have torn apart what God has put together. Well, I hope this passage is helpful for you in a few ways. One, I, I hope it gives language to some of the stuff you've experienced. Two, I hope it's a warning for all of us that if Paul and Barnabas can experience this kind of disunity, so can we. And then the last thing I hope it's helpful for you is the the silver lining at the end. We're going to see how God, uh, as one commentator said, God's providence overruled the schisms of man. And we're going to see how even in the midst of the split, God uses this disunity for for his glory and for our good. So let's jump into it here in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Okay, just a, a 
quick background for, for what we're talking about here. Um, if you are new here, you've probably still heard of Paul, right? Paul is one of the, the most important figures in Christian history. He wrote a plurality of the New Testament, books like Romans and 1 Corinthians. Um, you're probably familiar with Paul and the way that he started off as a, a persecutor of the Christian movement and then through a miraculous vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, becomes a Christian first and then a leader in the Christian movement. And he becomes one of the, the early missionaries uh, that brings the gospel to a lot of the Gentile world. What you may not be as familiar with, if you're new, is Barnabas. We've talked about him a little bit in this series, but he's not as well-known of a figure outside of, uh, even within the New Testament, but certainly outside in the in popular culture. But Barnabas was a really important leader, especially in Paul's life. Barnabas is the one who believed in Paul when no one else did. He's the one who encouraged him, who brought him into the church first, and then later brought him uh, before, uh, brought him into his first leadership role within the church. For a while, Barnabas and Paul was, even in the book of Acts, referred to in that order because Barnabas was the senior figure. He was the leader. He was the one who was well-known, and Paul was his mentee. Uh, in Acts 11, when Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel to this Roman city, um, they think that because of the miracles Barnabas and Paul are doing, they must be gods. And they say Barnabas was like Zeus because he was the leader, and Paul like Hermes because he was the spokesperson. And the, that's a weird story, and we talk about that one another day. Uh, but what's significant is the idea that Barnabas would be seen as the one who was in charge. Now, Paul comes to his mentor, the one who he owes so much to, the one he has learned so much from, uh, the one who stood side by side with one another during uh, the Jerusalem Council that we talked about last week in Acts 15, who had endured persecution together, who had been stoned together, had been cast out together, and says, hey, let's go back and encourage all these churches, knowing that Barnabas is in it to win it, right? They're, they're in it together, right? And... Uh, in some ways, you think, if these guys have stood up through all that the world has thrown at them, I might even say that the devil has thrown at them, they're going to be able to withstand anything. But, verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. We'd like it to be true that godly people will always get along. That as long as people's hearts are soft towards God and their intentions are in the right place, that they will always get along with one another. And we'd like to think, at least in a naive sense, that as long as people uh, are, are endeavoring to do the right thing, that they will obviously see how those right things dovetail with each other. And some of you are laughing at me at that level of naivete. Because you know that's not how it is. That's not how it is in your marriage. That's not how it is uh, in our church. That's not how it's been in your experience of life. That there are times, like Paul and Barnabas, that good and godly people have sharp disagreements over things that seem so secondary. And I wish that wasn't the case. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that there's always a villain in every story. Now, there's elsewhere in Acts where there are villains, right? There's there's stories like Ananias and Sapphira and Simon the magician. And there are clear figures sometimes in the New Testament that are like, hey, that guy was wrong. And the conflict came from that guy being wicked, right? Or at least doing a wicked thing. That's not the case here. Do you know how Barnabas is described in Acts 11.24? As full of the Holy Spirit and faith, a good man. That's, I mean, that's about as glowing of endorsement as you can get. And Paul is the one who is being willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. 
And I don't think, I'm just going to tip my hand here, I don't think in this passage one of them's right and one of them's wrong. I think both of them are bringing their best understanding of what is good to the table, and they're in conflict with each other. Look at verse 39. It says, There arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Why do they disagree so strongly about what to do? Uh, the, background, or the, the presenting problem, or the presenting issue, is over uh, this younger man named Mark. Mark had gone with them in a missionary journey in Acts 13, and for some reason, Luke doesn't record why, he gives up and he goes back home halfway through in a place called Pamphylia. And for Barnabas, I remember Barnabas isn't his real name, his real name is Joseph, but everyone calls him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he is so prone to see the world through the lens of encouragement. Barnabas sees this opportunity to give Mark a second chance, and he thinks, yes, that's what we do. We're people of the second chance. We're grace people. That's what the gospel is all about, giving people another chance. Paul, this is so perfect. We can go back and we can give Mark another opportunity to try again. After all, didn't Jesus say, don't just forgive seven times, but 70 times seven? This is perfect. Of course we should give Mark another chance. Now, for Paul, he sees the world through the lens of the importance and significance of the gospel. That's what he devotes his life to. That's what he sacrifices everything for. He would later write in 1 Corinthians, uh, to the Jew I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To the Greek I became as a Greek. I became all things to all men so that I might save some. Right? There is no cost too great to Paul to be willing to endure so that people would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond. For Paul, this is the most important thing in his life. And the idea that someone would quit on that because they got homesick or seasick or bored or whatever happened with Mark? Uh, Paul is, is, how can I put this? He's not willing to suffer fools lightly, right? He, he is not interested in your excuses. It's not that he doesn't believe in grace, right? He wrote Galatians, he wrote Romans, but get out of my way, right? He is a zealous person and a passionate person for the mission of God. And you can see how these two good things are butting heads here between Barnabas and Paul. Why am I spending time on this? Because sometimes we believe that the path to unity only comes through just us committing to what is right. But sometimes the biggest barrier to unity is our insistence that we're right and therefore the other person can't be right. Our insistence that, that when we see uh, through the lens of our personality, gifting and strengths, what seems obviously the right path, we're blinded to the possibility that another well-meaning Christian could have a different strength and perspective to bring to the table. There are times that your and my strengths are going to blind us to the best path to unity. As the saying goes, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And for Barnabas, his hammer was encouragement. He never met a problem that couldn't be fixed through encouragement. Encouragement and grace, encouragement and grace, encouragement and grace. Are those godly qualities? Of course they are. Of course they are. Man, I love those of you guys who have those qualities. Now for Paul, what's his hammer? Zeal, commitment, faith, going for it. Are those good and godly qualities? Of course they are too. The problem is, what do you do when they come in conflict, or at least seem to come in conflict? You can imagine here um, that this was not a one-time discussion. 
fact, the, the Greek grammar in verses 38 and 39 implied that this was a debate they had over a course of time, maybe d- days or weeks, where they keep hammering at each other. We should take Mark. We shouldn't take Mark. We should take Mark. We shouldn't take Mark. And this isn't in the Bible, but I'm just imagining, dramatic, dramatic license with you, that you're one of the other leaders in the church in Antioch, together with Barnabas and Paul. And they come and they sidle up next to you, one at a time. And Barnabas says, can you believe Paul? Can you believe that he doesn't see the significance of grace? After all, I mean, I don't want to bring it up, but he's kind of a, a second chance guy, isn't he? I mean, Mark didn't do anything nearly as bad as what Paul did. Can't he see that our faith is based on giving people grace? Why can't he just do that for Mark? And you kind of nod awkwardly because that's what we do when things are awkward. And then, and then Paul comes over next and he's like, can you believe Barnabas? Oh, he's just doing this because it's his cousin. Like, doesn't he, I'm, I'm not saying Mark's not saved. I'm not saying he can't be forgiven by God. But he needs to get out of my way, right? There are other young men in this church who deserve a chance to be a missionary. What about Silas? What about Timothy? What about Luke? Why do they, get a, why do they have to wait their turn because Mark insists on a second chance? I, I'm not saying that he couldn't have another chance later, but he needs to get to the back of the line. Didn't Jesus say in Luke 9.62 that hasn't been written yet, but it will be? Um, and then 1,500 years later, they'll add verses. Uh, the one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Didn't Jesus say that? Mark's done that exact thing. He's done that exact thing. He doesn't deserve a second chance. And you kind of nod your head awkwardly too, because Paul's a persuasive guy. And, uh, and he walks away. And your mind turns to Proverbs 18, 12, 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. For uh, Paul and Barnabas, the conflict doesn't come because one's good and one's bad or one's right and one's wrong, but because they have two different perspectives on what a good and godly thing to do in this circumstance is, and they seem unwilling or unable to listen to one another and come to some sort of compromise or agreement. Man, can you imagine that being a problem? Glad none of us struggle with that. Glad that's not true in our marriages or our families or our churches. I'm glad that we're never people who have only a hammer and think everything's a nail. Some of you guys are in difficult situations, and I don't mean to make light of them, because I know some of you guys are caring for elderly, grand- elderly parents or grandparents, and you have come to some difficult decisions of what is right to do to help your parents or grandparents. But there's only a problem. Uh, the problem is your siblings who have a different opinion or a different perspective on their driver's license or where they should live. And it's, it's emotional and it's difficult. And oftentimes, it's not that you're good and your sibling is wicked or vice versa. It's that you have two different competing perspectives on what to do in a difficult situation. Same thing's true in marriage, right? Uh, things that we find attractive about people when we're dating them, all of a sudden we get married and they become frustrations, right? Like, I love how spontaneous you are when you're dating becomes, I can't trust you with a credit card when you're married. Um, (laughs) And most of the time, it's not that our spouse is wicked or that we're this wicked killjoy, but we have two different perspectives on what it means to live uh, a good and holy life before God together. Same thing, unfortunately, happens in churches where two competing goods can come at odds with one another. Should we be a church that's committed to outreach or discipleship? Should we be a church that's committed to reaching the next generation or encouraging and caring for those who are older? 
Should we be a church uh, that values and esteems worship, uh, or should we be a church that invests our resources out in the community? Uh, the answer is rarely clear, and it's rarely one good and one bad. Unfortunately, Paul and Barnabas don't benefit from one another's insight because they choose to divide over their differences. This is what verse 39 says. There arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and sailed with him to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. There's a question there of what it means that he was commended by the grace of the Lord. Some commentators say, see, that's a sign that Paul's right and Barnabas is wrong. No second chances, right? Uh, I think that says more about their commentators' personalities than the Bible. Because other commentators see this and say, see, Paul needed the grace of the Lord. That's because he was wrong. That's why he needs grace. I think the truth is the Bible isn't entirely clear in this case of who's right and who's wrong, probably on purpose, because it wants us to live in this same sort of tension, that we're going to have situations like Paul and Barnabas did. I got to be honest, there was no one in our church as smart as the Apostle Paul. He spoke at least six languages. He wrote letters that are still being read and studied and learned from 2,000 years later. There is no one in our church probably who's as godly as Barnabas, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who did miracles, who was mistaken for a god. These are heroes of the faith, and rightly so. And if they can have conflict, so, so so we're going to as well. So the question is, what can we learn from this passage? They separated because they couldn't agree, and it was painful. I wonder if Paul was reflecting back on this later when he wrote Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace for everyone. There's nowhere I know of in Paul's letters where he directly says he regrets this division from Barnabas. But I think it's pretty clear that it doesn't reflect living at peace with everyone as far as it depended on him. It's not that hard for us to think 2,000 years later, what are some steps they could have taken towards a compromise? I mean, this is just off the top of my head, but you probably could come up with some to add as well. If you had come in from the outside and you had gotten Paul and Barnabas to stop being so stubborn, what are some other solutions you could have come up with? You could have said, well, maybe we say, Mark, you can go with, but only on a shorter trip to prove your mettle. Or Mark, you can come with, but you have to pay for it out of your own pocket. Or Mark, you can go with, but not this time. You can go with next time. Or we're too close to this, Paul and Barnabas are. We're going to turn over this decision to the elders and we're going to let them choose after they consider all the evidence rather than being so stubborn with one another. We could bring in a mediator. We could bring in someone else to give us some perspective. Now, you probably could come up with more compromises. The point is that for Paul and Barnabas, this became a test of their mettle and as a result, it broke them as a relationship. Well, I don't want to end on a downer because I don't want to throw Paul and Barnabas under the bus. What they've done is what so many Christians since them have done. But I do want to highlight some of the ways here at the end that God used this sad and painful experience for his glory and for our good. And this isn't to excuse their quarreling. I think I've been pretty clear. I think Paul and Barnabas were in the wrong for resolving things this way. But it is to say that sometimes when there are these painful experiences, good does come out of it. There is a silver lining to it. Because I know some of you have stories similar to, like, to this, that, that maybe you've been the one who has not been able to see things from other people's perspectives, and later on you regret it. Or you've been a victim of, of some other people who are in leadership above you, maybe at a church or maybe your parents, who in their quarreling, uh, you experienced some of the shrapnel. 
And, and I don't want to dis, discount that pain, but to say that there is good that can come out of even these painful divisions. For uh, Paul and Barnabas, it's, there's a very obvious one. that Instead of one missionary endeavor, there became two pretty quickly. And you've, you wonder, wait, wait, wait. Paul and Barnabas, if you had all these missionaries ready to go, that as soon as you fight, you were able to find all these guys to go on a trip, it didn't occur to you just to take two trips from the get-go? Like, why didn't, maybe because they had been so committed to one another and been through so many battles together, Paul and Barnabas couldn't see past that to the next generation? But you've got to wonder, maybe this is not intended by God, but in his, in his sovereignty and his providence, used in order to help more people hear the gospel and respond. We see that sometimes in church history, that while church splits are often very painful and very embarrassing to the cause of Christ, sometimes they can be used to reach more people than would have been otherwise. I have a mentor who uh, works a lot with church plants, and he says one of the sad things he's observed is that churches often fail to plant another congregation because they're scared of what could happen or they're scared of what it would mean to start a new church or what the cost would be. And so they hold on and hold on and hold on and hold back. And then as a result, all these aspiring leaders and, and burgeoning leaders end up splitting the church five years later. And he says, I wish you would have just planted a church on purpose rather than on accident because what ended up happening was a lot more painful and if you had just endeavored to send out more people into the mission field from the get-go, you could have avoided some of this pain. Um, okay, I know, I know I've talked a lot about church world, and some of you guys say, like, I, I'm, not in, I'm not really a church person. Like, Bob, you're a pastor, not me. Like, does this apply to my life? I, I think it does. And I think here, here's kind of where I want to end. The path to unity, whether it's unity in your family, unity in our church, unity across some of the divides uh, in our culture and across the church universal. It is established by God, right? When we as Christians say that, that we believe in one pure and holy Catholic church, a line from the creed, what we're confessing is that we believe that God has knit us together in unity. But you and I have the choice of whether we're going to participate in that unity or not. You and I have the choice of whether we're going to enjoy that unity or not. That's a, a choice that we make every day, every week, and how we treat one another, how, what we choose to divide over, what we choose to stay connected over. And you and I have that choice even going out of here. Do we want to enjoy the unity of God? Or do we insist on being right and having our own way, failing to see the perspective of others, failing to compromise? If we do, God will still use it for good. God's good. But we'll miss out on the part, opportunity to participate in that. I hope that for you and me and for our church, what we'll experience is uh, the genuine unity of God. And we'll do that not just through what he has done for us, but in our choice to participate in it, our choice to learn from one another, to benefit from one another, and to see things from one another's perspective. Uh, let's pray together. God, I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters here um, who, to use the words of scripture, so often have to die to their own preferences in order to enjoy the greater good of living in unity in Christ. God, it's um, so tempting to see ourselves as right and therefore others as wrong. It requires so much more humility and patience and kindness to say maybe they're right as well. How can we learn from one another? But God, there is a lot of good to be enjoyed 
in being unified in Christ. May, us find, may we find our delight in you and in your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.